The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Video Insiders. How are you doing, Dror? I'm doing great, Mark. How are you? Well, really excited for our guest yet again. You know, we just keep uh, the response is amazing. Again, if anybody's interested in coming on the show, we're, we're pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. You also can send us an email at the video insiders, uh, just all spelled out at Beamer, that's B E A M R dot com, and just tell us what you'd like to talk about. And uh, I don't think we've turned anyone down yet. Have we? No. You can no? come on the show if you have something and you're passionate about that. We'll be happy to talk to you and uh, and get some insights into the video technology industry. So far, it's been very exciting. And we like to host those video insiders. And Mark, I think today Absolutely. we have a real video insider again. We have another video insider. So we're talking today with Ian Nock, and he is with Fairmile West. Ian has definitely been around the industry, done a lot, and you know I'm going to let him uh, tell us that. So, Ian, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on here. Yeah, Excellent. we're, we're really well. happy. Yeah, happy to have you. So, uh, tell us about Ian Nock. You know what what you are doing and where you've been, and, uh, and then let's jump into a, a discussion about HDR. I think that's a good topic. Okay, excellent. So, um, so I'm one of those guys who've been around since the dawn of the digital era, the traditional digital era in the late 90s, coming in through uh, a satellite operation, actually, back then. But uh, with the various acquisitions and moves and changes, I've pretty much moved through all of the different delivery media uh, over the top, satellite, IPTV, cable, etc., covering predominantly the networking aspect in the delivery and distribution side, but also moving into set-of-box integration and delivery design architecture. But from a company perspective, ML West covers both the consumer devices piece, as we call it, and also the video services piece. And we have a, a number of uh, consultants who work with us in a wide variety of areas uh, throughout Europe, actually. In fact, predominantly, we work in Europe, but of course, that doesn't stop us looking towards the global stage, which is where uh, the ultra-high definition and HDR has really come in in the last, last four or five years. We want to focus today on um, an aspect of video, which is um, a very important and important part of uh, uh, increasing and improving the user uh, experience. And this is a uh, high dynamic range, HDR for video. And I think everybody uh, agrees that uh, when you watch uh, in HDR, you get a better uh, range of, uh, of brightness and you get uh, more vivid uh, colors. And the whole experience of watching is better. But obviously, achieving this experience uh, you know, requires a whole... A workflow to come together and uh, enable this delivery from the capture of the content through the editing, pre-processing, and coding, and delivery until finally the end consumer through his uh, display device can experience HDR. So I know there are various, um, several variants of uh, HDR, like five or six variants, where the major ones are HLG, HDR10, and Dolby Vision, but. Um, I was quite surprised to hear that even if you're using one of these major standards, really the experience you get as a consumer can vary a lot based on the device you are using and its actual capabilities in terms of rendering HDR content. So can you give us some um, insights into these uh, differences between devices when it comes to HDR display? Of course, of course. It's it's very much true in the in the sort of display area that really you do get what you pay for generally. And obviously if you pay more money you get a, a higher quality display with higher capabilities. But what we have to look to is that uh, just like with the hi-fi industry, with the audio industry, there are a great many different devices that suit different use cases and different uh, pockets, so to speak. So 
in many respects, to, you know, speaking towards televisions themselves, you know, we, we go out there now today, we buy a television, we could buy one in the $500 to $1,000 range, we can go and buy a television all the way up to four or $5,000, or even now with the latest displays that have come out and uh, been talked about with CES and stuff, we can go all the way up to five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000, but what, you know, what are the key differences between those? And uh, what it really comes down to is the quality of that panel, the quality in terms of what bit depth it actually reproduces in terms of the cut for the color range and for the dynamic range and also the general overall luminance and i will make a very clear differentiation between luminance and dynamic range because they're not exactly the same thing luminance is, is very much how bright you can make the screen but the dynamic range is very much how precisely you can reproduce all the various levels of tone within the actual imagery but if you want to actually look at those 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 typical televisions in that lower end range you know we you go out there now today and buy those displays and they're running at anything between 300 and 500 nits of luminance they tend to tend to be an 8-bit display they tend to have a color range get or gamut of uh, approximately 80 to 85 percent of uh, dci p3 just so you know, there's a lot of alphabet soup in these things. So that is also one of the complexities that come into play with this. But that's the sort of typical television you get in the sort of $500 to $1,000 range. And that's a reasonably good experience, just like you get a good experience from a reasonably priced audio system. But the key thing with that is that is not necessarily what a lot of people would describe as the premium experience and that's what you get when you go to a $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 or more dollar display where you could be talking the region of a thousand nits 1200 nits 1500 nits of luminance peak luminance with full 10-bit color palette and you would also have a lot more bells and whistles in terms of uh, those extra features certainly things like dolby vision come into play at all sorts of levels but you've also got the fact that you have multi-format support and uh, better audio reproduction on the television sets but that, that's in terms of pure display capabilities. And when it comes to mobile devices, you've got the similar thing here. If you buy a, a sort of mid, mid-range uh, HDR uh, display phone, as you, you can buy nowadays, you will, you know, it can end up with a 500-nit luminance display, which is pretty good. Or you can actually have higher capabilities and higher color range on those as you, as you go up to the high-end devices that you can buy. But what does that mean in terms of the customer experience? Well, all it really means is that actually you'll have a, a better reproduction of the content. The same content is delivered to the TV. The same content is displayed on the television. And in that respect, I always draw parallels perfectly with the the hi-fi and, and uh, audio side of the of the world, where there you can have a great experience on a, a fairly low-end reproduction system like a Sonos device, or you can actually go and spend a lot of money and have a full-on multi-speaker surround sound system in your home providing you with a full soundstage reproduction if you wanted to but of course you'll pay for that completely and fully and that's 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 how i see is the, the the very differences is you can have a great a good experience or you can have a great experience and it's a matter of where you want to put the dollars but as you said the, there's really a you know large alphabet soup involved here and in yes. terms like uh you know dynamic range and color space and bit depth and luminance and it, obviously, the average consumer can't uh, really, you know, comprehend all of these different um, uh, terms and 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 specific values of of each device under each of these categories, and and compare them. So, is there some industry certification of or standard that the consumer says, okay, this is an uh, HDR uh, consumer level device, this is an HDR premium device, and this is L- HDR ultra, something like that. And I don't know, some lab t- yeah. does the test and you get certification. And then the consumer knows what level of experience they can expect from a certain device. There, well, there is actually, but it very much is targeted at the, what we would term the premium end. And there is the Ultra, H, the Ultra HD Alliance, which is an organization drawn primarily from the, the content companies and, and t- television manufacturers of this world. And they have a certification process using their, their particular set of criteria, which actually 
is fair, fair, you know, it's the high end level that I've just described. It is the one, you know, 1000 nit and above. If you happen to have a particular LED display, LED display or LCD display, or if you have another type of technology, it's a, it's a, it's got a lower luminance level, but it has much deeper blacks in terms of OLEDs. And there is a certification process for that. And it is, you know, it is very much something which many, many of the TV manufacturers sign up to, but it does actually cover pretty much those displays above $1,000, pretty much, mm-hmm. uh, which are not the, the mainstream television displays that many, many of the average ordinary consumer buys. I'd also like to talk to that, that, that point about the fact that does the consumer really have to understand this? Well, there was a time, I think, three years back that consumer did have to understand it a, a little bit. That was when we were very much in an early adopter stage. But today, I think if you uh, go out there now to a store and buy a television that's labeled HDR, you will have a television that won't necessarily be that high-end UHDA certified, UHDA premium certified display, but um, it will still have a good experience the same way that many consumers don't go out there when they buy a music system. They don't go out there and buy something based on its degree, you know, how much uh, total harmonic distortion has or what type of amplifiers are within it. So I think we have luckily reached a stage where people can go out now today and get a buy a television without a lot of that education needing to be there to have an okay experience, a good experience. But if they really want to get the best from what they're buying, then they will almost certainly need to delve themselves down into the, the details and the things like the UHDA premium uh, certification does actually work to that. Of course, not every TV manufacturer s- supports that particular label. But that's, that's unfortunately where we are in the world today. I think there's a similar situation or has been a similar situation with monitors for computer displays. And Visa have worked very hard to, to introduce a, a similar certification scheme, which is a little bit more broad and uh, allows you to sort of understand what is a low end, what is a mid end and what is a high end display. I think in the TV space, it's not really had that yet. But of course, the other key wonderful thing about this is that technology keeps moving on. Price points still maintain, but uh, TVs available and the capability of TVs at particular price points do improve over the time period. So ultimately, it will mature very much like the audio market has, where even the most basic uh, mobile phone device, when attached to a, a reasonable set of headphones, will actually give good audio reproduction for your music. But uh, the same now with the TV displays, you'll get a you'll get a better and better experience every year as things develop better. So, Ian, I um, definitely agree that you know I think today the consumer, for those of us who are sort of more video files, so to speak, yes. it, we can definitely appreciate OLED technology compared to other lesser expensive technologies. But at the end of the day. For the consumer, especially someone coming from a from a 1080p, maybe a you know now it could even be a 10 year old panel, right? Even a, a relatively inexpensive, meaning sort of cheaper UHD television is going to look awesome. It's going to yes. look really it's 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 really going to be great. So the consumer is going to feel wow, I got this amazing experience, and it wasn't even that expensive. There is actually the fact that you know you you're absolutely correct there that. A television you buy now for $500 will actually give you a much better experience than pretty much any display you've bought in the last, you know, prior to three or four years from previous to now. So those standard dynamic range sets, you know, it will be much better, simply much better. It's just, as you say, you're buying good or better. That's what you're you're talking about now when you go out and buy HDR television now today. It's just whether it's good or better, not whether it's actually bad. Yeah. There are one or two bad ones, but... uh, but there are always one or two what we call lemons in this business, isn't there really? Sure, sure, sure. But that's out of hundreds of, you know, of models in the market. So yes. it's a very, very, you know, very small percentage. But there's there, there's one big wild card in all this. And that is that you can have this amazing display. You can have this amazing capture device, i.e. the camera. And, you know, we're not even going to begin to talk about camera technologies, but wow, you know, the state of the art is just really moving fast on the capture side. And yet, if the distribution, either the way the streams are prepared or just choices that the video distribution platform is making, if those are either don't even support HDR or if there are mistakes made along the way, then then ultimately what happens is what the consumer sees 
is not a good experience. And I would love to pivot into talking about sort of the content, you know, the preparation, the distribution aspect. And I think we we have a very high profile example, and that is the World Cup, you know, that happened last summer. And I'd love to hear, because I know you were very intimately involved with monitoring what was happening there. It was very high profile in the streaming industry, 4K distribution, HDR, and yet not all consumers had a good experience, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was it, initially when you were actually in the midst of the, the of the World Cup itself. You know, you're you're searching out for looking at how people are getting on with distributing this content. Very much for the for many many broadcasters and uh, and distributors for the very first time. Some of which had uh, relatively little preparation. Some had good levels, really good levels of long term preparation. Previously done, have done previous events using the technologies and allowed some of that. Uh, the, that, that that experience to build up a bit, but many actually jumped straight in, and uh, there are a few glaring problems sometimes that occurred during, especially the first match is actually relatively famous for having a, a few little issues in color reproduction, which they got fixed on later matches. But the key thing to note here, of course, is that the World Cup, although it was there was a focus on UHD and HDR. It was still very much a World Cup for the average consumer with a HD display without high dynamic range or white color gamut. So those guys had a great experience. There was a little bit more experimentation in the HDR side. So there was a few practice issues that occurred, but they were quickly resolved. Then we, uh, of course, got into the main matches themselves, and we were very much in the midst of it, looking at what people were thinking, looking at uh, operators' experience, looking at broadcasters' experiences, and seeing what they were talking about, seeing what the issues they were seeing. And uh, we started to pick up some 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 information off the, off the internet there. I call it a sort of the internet observatory of, of this behavior. So <laughs> it's a good way. I.E. Twitter, right? I.E. Twitter. Or Martin yeah. Group's forums. You've got yeah. a lot of different AF websites like AV Forum. And you go and delve in there and you start sort of seeing what people report and see what issues are being reported there. Now, the key thing to note here is that, that there was a lot of magnification taking place uh, because, of course, the people who really care about it were really, really digging into it at that time. People who were doing, who were really high end users of, of this sort of technology. And therefore, they were reporting small issues, big issues. They were reporting everything. And it only t- took a few dozens of people to report issues for it to be really magnified high. So we delved into that and really worked into the bottom of it. And one thing I sort of hit the lead on here, of course, is I didn't really mention in my introduction that one of the sort of side things I do actually is I, I work with the Ultra HD Forum, which is an industry alliance of technology companies, content companies, television manufacturers. It's a a, a side organization to the UHDA, which I mentioned earlier. And I'll bring it up now as well, because Beamer is actually a member as well. But I I work within that organization for the last uh, four years or so. But in the last couple of years, I've actually been the chair of their interoperability, interoperability working group. It's a hard word to say sometimes. And that interoperability working group is why we focused on what was happening during the World Cup last year and looking at how this one of the it's one of the first real big events of UHD HDR was taking place and how it was going to be perceived and seen and experienced. And so we were delving deep into this and we saw these issues that are coming up through the Internet Observatory and what we decided well it took us a, it took us a week or so to realise that actually many of the issues were not horribly bad. The metal of the issues were we sort of fell into the word we used, which was snagging issues, where so a lot of, some consumers, particularly in some countries more than others, had a particular set of issues with particular TV displays or particular combinations of a service operator with the television display or with a particular set-up box design or whatever. So there was a lot of these little issues came up. And through the work of the forum, we actually collated and worked on defining and understanding what all those issues are that came out. And they really fell into a number of camps. So primary one was basically where there was just faults, uh, where the TV displays themselves were just purely faulty. And, you know, those one-off issues were relatively easy to deal with in terms of identifying. It's unfortunate that someone had a broken display at that point, so they had to get a new display. The other one we had was is where people believed they had UHD, HDR, but actually didn't. 
um, where therefore they were underwhelmed with the entire experience. Uh, and that was unfortunate communication issue. Uh, so sorry, so, sorry to jump in, but but I think this is really relevant. So are you talking about, let's say, an early adopter who had a 4K panel, but didn't understand that some of those early TVs actually do, are not high dynamic range? Is that what you're talking right. about? Or certainly, certainly, yes. There was that that issue where they had some displays that were not quite what they thought they were. And there was a few minor issues. Important that these sure. are snagging issues. These Problem, are not major, yeah, exactly. major problems. Yeah, yeah. And that's not the fault of the video distributor. I mean, you know, it's, it's yeah. But then we also had the fact that some service operators were delivering their 4K service. And because the consumer had a 4K HDR display, they thought they had 4K HDR. And they were also underwhelmed a little bit as well. Mm. So there was those reports coming out where they, unfortunately, several service operators didn't take HDR. So that was a misunderstanding of the service that they were getting, and, and not not uh, the TV. This yes, issue yes. was, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, and this is the actual extra complexity here. The complexity is not actually in the formats as much as the combinations that you can have, and mm-hmm. and you know you can have a combination of a variety of different formats on the on the the video content delivered, and then combine it with the TV display combinations. And it's that's what the extra complexity is in. It's the, just the combinations. There's nothing fundamentally more complex as such about HDR in terms of its delivery as so much of making sure that you're delivering the right content to the right display and that the customer has is getting what they think they're getting, so to speak. And it's messaging. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is, you know, it's even just fundamentally the customer understanding and, and, and it actually does get complex really quickly. Like even, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're just referencing HDR, right? But there is HDR 10 as a standard. You know, there's, there's Samsung's, what is that? HDR 10 plus plus. plus. There's, uh, there's Dolby Vision. There's variants, right? And, and across yeah. the panels, they don't all support some support better than others. And so you're a service provider. How in the world do you message? You want to just say HDR. And that's and you really shouldn't say any more than that because the consumer just won't understand. So yeah, it's interesting what you're pointing out. The messaging. Yeah, you know. The messaging is important to make sure that the customer's got the right equipment. The service provider's yeah. got the right content. And another thing I just want to go into this of HDR format. It's actually simpler than many think sometimes because at the end of the day, people think of all these different formats of, of HDR and you hear the protestations about it. it's all very complex. But actually, really, reality-wise, there is actually only two HDR formats for distribution. There's, mm-hmm. there's the HLG, which is uh, the NHK BBC standard, which at this moment in time does dominate for the broadcast linear services of this world and, and some over the top side, the BBC specifically use it. But the, the other one you refer to, HDR10, that actually is more of a video profile of the actual underlying format that's really there mm-hmm. for, for HDR. And that is the format called PQ or perceptual quantization. That's the, that's yeah. the actual fundamental underlying format. And HDR10 is a combination of that with some other values like the bit depth and the resolution and also the, the static. HEVC, don't forget. And HEVC and video HEVC, encoding. Yes, absolutely. HEVC, HEVC is a given here, by the way. If you're dealing with 4K, I think you've heard it on pre- previous episodes. If you're dealing with 4K, then pretty much today you're talking HEVC. Yeah. Because that's that's just where we are. That's the, got the best maturity when it comes to device support. It's got the hardware deco capability. It's got the compression that allows you to deliver the four times the amount of data, which it, which is really what 4K is doing. So HEVC is a is a given there, and you've got other formats, but they're they're very much for the they're very much that will develop in the future. Uh, and you can you've done episodes before here that which you've talked about that development. And I'm sure you'll do some more episodes which will talk about that. But going back to the format then, so PQ is an important format because actually it's what underlies Dolby Vision. It's what underlies HDR10 Plus and even advanced HDR from Technicolor has got PQ yeah. as a major part of its base. And it's important to realize that that it is perfectly possible, and this is something the Ultra HD Forum does communicate, that you can actually deliver services as as a with a base layer of pq and with dolby vision capabilities on top and with hdr 10 plus capabilities and with technicolors advanced hdr or sl hdr 2 capabilities that they have and underlying it because it's pq and when it's delivered to a television display that supports pq which is pretty which is all hdr televisions today 
then you will receive a perfectly acceptable, if not really good, HDR experience because it will decode the PQ data. What makes these these additional of the formats more than just PQ is the fact that they are actually the dynamic metadata that's provided along with the those content in different formats. So Dolby Vision has dynamic metadata, which is a standard, which is SMPTE twenty ninety four dash ten. You've got Technicolors, which is SMPTE twenty ninety four dash twenty and thirty. You've got Samsung with SMPTE twenty forty. A family of standards around dynamic metadata, which are used by those televisions that are we here in the wild is called supporting Dolby Vision or supporting uh, HDR ten plus. This metadata is used to enhance that HDR content delivery uh, and to get render it better and more consistently on the panel associated with the content itself. Obviously, the content has to be produced using that particular production process that produces Dolby Vision or produces HDR ten plus. But ultimately, it's there just to enhance the content and it's perfectly viable to create services that are based on PQ, which are great HDR experiences, and then have it enhanced by those other formats. And uh, that's an important thing to realize when it comes to compatibility on displays and something which operators and broadcasters are also thinking about because they're looking about how to create an experiences that will be great for everybody, but better for those people who've got displays that support those formats. So if somebody is sending uh, Dolby Vision or HDR10+, and my TV doesn't support those formats, it only supports regular HDR10 or HLG, then um, uh, will it be possible for me to see that uh, that content, just not uh, enhanced with, uh, with the dynamic metadata? Yes, with a tiny little wrinkle, and that is that it is perfectly possible to produce Dolby Vision that isn't aligned in that format with, because it has other capabilities that, that are part of Dolby Vision. Mm particularly in terms of the color space and in terms of the way the data is combined. There are some, I wouldn't like to call them legacy formats. There are other profiles of Dolby Vision that don't work fully and correctly in this way, but it is certainly possible now if a, if a broadcaster or a distributor wanted to have a universal service today, then they can go out there and send out a service, which is PQ10, which is a 10-bit version of PQ, with enhancements on top, which are Dolby Vision, enhancements on top, which are maybe HDR10+. And those only those TVs that have those capabilities will be enhanced by them, but everyone else will have a great experience. Mm-hmm. So technically this is possible, but is there any service provider that is doing this today? Not as such. Not as such. I can't go into that. You know, I have suspicions about some service providers, whether they're doing experiments with this. It certainly has been discussed in standards bodies right now about how to do it and what well, how to do it, how to actually have it standardized in a way that broadcast and operators can align themselves well with it and understand fully all the different things they have to do. But in terms of the base level standards, they're all there today that you can actually do this. In fact, the forum has been doing work over the last two years where we've we've demonstrated this sort of universality quite well and quite easily. And um, we'll, the forum will be going again to NAB and doing that sort of demonstration as well, showing how you, uh, how you can have this universality of support. But uh, it, it cleans the complexity up really quickly and, and easily when you realize that these are the formats, these many supposed formats we have HDR are actually based on PQ and they, with the right configuration, people can actually do services that work pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know, Ian, I think most of our listeners have heard of the UHD forum. Maybe even some are members or their companies are members, but maybe you can just take a minute and give a quick kind of a high level introduction into what the forum is doing to help improve, you know, the video experience around this, this topic, because it's a, it's a major thrust, if not, you know, kind of the primary focus. Of course, of course. So the forum, as I say, originally started to be a group of all the companies coming together to create work on a better ecosystem for delivery of UHD content including high dynamic range, including wide color gamut, including high frame rate content, including next generation audio. So that's things like uh, Dolby Atmos and MPEG-H. So they came across that. And, and of course, the early days of the forum's work, they identified quickly they needed a particular set of work groups or working groups, depending on what you want to call them. And uh, a number were set up within the organization. First one, predominantly, was the guidelines working group who set themselves a task to come up with a document that defines the best guidelines possible for operators and broadcasters to deliver services using UHD technologies with the best working practices 
and uh, along with that so that it basically pulls together all the different standards and, uh, and understandings and loose bits of information and engineers thoughts into a single document that actually is then a sort of the best view of how to do it today and the forum has now done seven releases of that document over the last three to four years and there will be an eighth made available for NAB, which will be quite a stupendous release. You know, that's quite been quite a lot of work over the time. But that's the guidelines working group. The second working group is actually the interop working group, which is uh, the interoperability working group, of which I'm the chair of that. And initially, we that, that group was set up to work on figuring out what does work based on input from the guidelines group, based on input from members, to identify what the things were that were causing people's challenges that wasn't being worked on in other places. And these were very much the usage of the technology. We don't, we don't sort of validate the development of technology. We validate the usage and make sure we, we clarify exactly how you should or should not do things or the best practices of those rather than should not. And so for the last three years, we, three or four years, we've actually started uh, initially on just how do you actually deliver the basic content to a television set and actually uh, have it understood to be in a particular format. So that was the signaling uh, of the, the content. We also then looked at the implementation of how metadata worked. And so that obviously was pointing towards things like uh, the static metadata that would go toward, go together with HDR10. It would also look towards uh, the dynamic metadata. So we did a lot of work on that sort of side, looking at how televisions, real televisions, real production TVs out there understood the video delivery that was standardized and identifying those issues and passing those back through to member companies so that people work on resolving those issues, but also into the guidelines so we can say what works and what does not work. I think a, a classic example there, for example, is one of the key guideline uh, statements is about if you're delivering a UHD HDR service is that you don't switch modes within the same video stream. So, uh, you know, if you're going to deliver it using HLG, then you don't switch to PQ halfway through because that, right. that makes sense. Work really well. What it sort of does and does not make sense. And obviously it may change in the future as television capabilities get better. But at the moment, that was the best working practice we came up with. If you're going to deliver a service, make sure you stay in that format. Also, don't intermix SDR and HDR content. The same sort of thing can occur. Television sets uh, would behave differently, have undefined behavior if that occurred. So that was one of the, one of the key working areas. And we've been involved over that, looking more and more at the end-to-end practice. And like I said, last summer doing the World Cup, looking at how the World Cup was delivered by all the different takers and looking at the best practices that they followed and documenting those and passing them back into the guidelines, the working group. And there are also another working group, which is the comms working group, who go out there to educate, communicate, and organize demonstrations for the industry as a whole about how best to do certain things and the interop supports that the, the guidelines group supports that the entire membership supports that work uh, going to uh, the big exhibitions and conferences every few months to actually uh, show the working proper technologies for how to deliver and distribute uhd and hdr content and we also and there are other working groups yeah, I think uh, interop and, and, and guidelines. Of no, there is actually a couple of more, but they're, they're very much more focused on how liaison with standards bodies and in the liaison group. And also we have a subgroup of the uh, guidelines group security who are working on the, the enhanced security features that are necessary for UHD and looking at certain aspects that are not necessarily well defined for people and uh, making sure that information is updated into the guidelines document. So that pretty much covers those working groups. Yeah, the guidelines and interop are, are very important. The, the, yes. These are really key to the industry of development as you introduce new capabilities with so many vendors working across the industry in various positions of production, post-production, and coding, and consumption of content with the devices. You really have to make sure that everybody is talking uh, the same language and uh, that everything uh, works together and brings a great... Um, consumer experience. So that's really important. And we are very proud to be part of this uh, activity. And we've uh, uh, contributed to the guidelines, especially in the topic of uh, content adaptive encoding, yes. which is part of phase two. So yes. uh, yeah, we really, really appreciate the work of, uh, 
of uh, of the UHD forum uh, in this respect. And a lot of the work of the last eighteen months has been focused on uh, making it clear to people that making clear to industry as a whole, making clear to operators, broadcasters that you can deliver services to consumer displays and it will work well and it will have good behavior and it will give a great consumer experience. And the further onward development of UHD and HDR technologies is being done with a view of ensuring there is a level of backwards compatibility and there's an approach to that so you can actually support you know, consumers who have both the older equipment uh, in terms of phase A pieces, we have this phase A and phase B thing, which uh, will certainly be an interesting discussion when it comes forward in uh, in NAB in a few weeks' time. That you know that we're obviously moving into a different phase now, but up to now we've had this phase A and phase B. Phase B A being the base level technologies of uh, HLG and PQ, and phase B being those technologies that are supported on a smaller subset of the devices like Dolby Vision, like Technicolor SL HDR One. And, but we've been very much focused on making sure that uh, it's clear that this the approach you should take is to actually implement the technologies in a way that phase A services are deployed and that anything that's phase B, anything that's an enhancement or an additional technology that's placed on top of that never breaks the phase A, that you can always con- provide a good continuous consumer service because the last thing you, you want in any new technology implementation or new technology deployment or new product deployment is that when you put stuff out there that it actually breaks the people who invested early in the in the technologies and I think prior to 2016 we definitely did have that, that we had a number of television displays and uh, other service providers producing content that wasn't necessarily standardized fully, wasn't uh, fully supportive of the things that were being developed and changed on the fly at that time. But since 2016, it's very much stabilized into a much more consistent consumer environment where it's safe for a consumer to buy a DV display, it's safe for an operator to produce a set of services and they'll be they're going to be uh, confident that a consumer will be able to enjoy a great experience. Right, right. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, previously that the guidelines uh, say that you shouldn't uh, switch the uh, HDR formats uh, midstream and you shouldn't mix HDR and SDR. But what typically happens is if you have a UHD HDR broadcast or, or event, sometimes the uh, the commercial, the advertisements are not up to the mm-hmm. quality of that broadcast. They're still HD or they're still SDR. So so how is this handler? Are they? Do, do you need to upconvert them? Um, Very definitely. So, so have, uh, yes. Yeah. One of the focus areas early on in the forum was these issues around what happens if you've got SDR content intermixed with HDR content, whether that's institutions like adverts or whether there's actually a particular feed from a, a studio that's still in mm-hmm. kind of dynamic range or whether actually like it was in the World Cup where although the majority of the cameras used were for 4K HDR but we had, there was a number of specialist calendars and uh, specialist cameras that were still in HD or still in standard dynamic range. So you've got to do something to actually make sure everything's consistent so you have that single stream of consistency going down to the TV display through the entire end-to-end delivery chain. And there are a number of companies, several of whom are members, who have worked hard on that, who have actually produced tools that implement the conversion processes defined by the standards bodies for how to actually encapsulate SDR content in HDR formats or how to actually convert even or even uh, pseudo enhance that content so it does look like a so it looks consistent on the consumer end it may not be a full sdr uh, full hdr experience but it will certainly won't look jarringly different and and there's a lot of work being done on that and the world cup was a great example where that that really was done you know, on mass on the mass with the consumers out there where many studios were in sdr in hd they were converted to 4K and HDR. Several of the cameras were, as I said, SDR and HD. They were converted to 4K HDR and then delivered consistently through to the consumer's TV display. Mm-hmm. And Crazy. it looked great. And sometimes for the uh, those people who've got poor eyesight necessarily or not, not, the, not the golden eyes of, uh, of people who are into color grading or even the silver eyes like mine, that you, you, you can really <laughs> barely see. That's a new one, it. Mark. Silver yeah. eyes. Silver eyes. That's right. Silver eyes. I don't have a golden eye. 
And, and the golden eye. Yeah. It's another uh, level. It's an intermediate level. Yeah. Uh, silver eyes. <laughs> I, I, I know nice. my own limitations. I could never work as a color grader. I don't have the eyesight for it. But I certainly uh, know, know enough to see when, uh, when content isn't necessarily in the, originally sourced in that material. This is a, a really interesting lead-in, I think, to you know our final question. And and that is this whole, you know, there there seems to be some discussion, even, even a lot of discussion about the need to separate resolution from dynamic range. And and, yeah. and the thinking goes like this. The thinking is that when you're talking uh, 4K, just it's a lot of pixels, it's a lot of data, and then you add the HDR metadata layer on top of it, and your bit rates just get even with technologies like ours where you know we can reduce them very significantly but still for a lot of people even in in very developed markets it's difficult to access that content the bit rates are just so high and so you know there is discussion about why can't we have 1080p hdr why does it have to be that 1080p always equals sdr you know kind of rec 709 and then 4k automatically means it has to go to hdr why can't there can be a very significant consumer benefit I'm sort of wondering if you've been exposed to, you know, some of this dialogue, some of these conversations, if you have some some thinking around that, or if maybe you can give us some insights as to maybe how a listener who is listening to our conversation, they're they're excited about HDR personally, they want it themselves, but maybe their company is saying, yeah, but our consumer can't access, you know, those 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 big fat bit rates. So either it's kind of all or nothing, you know, <laughs> either, either you can access our 4k HDR, or you just kind of get, you know, the I'll just call it the standard bit rates and the in the standard quality that we're transmitting today. Do you have yeah. some, you know, some insights? Or do you, you know, is there something that, um, that can help us here? Yes, yeah, certainly, there are a great many reports by several big companies in fact the bbc have done two separate ones that i've read again recently and very much it was it's been you know there's a lot of analysis around what the ideal seating position is from a display and what that is in terms of the size of display and how far from the display in a standard room for for hd for 4k for for even 8k if you want to get into that conversation and there's all this great discussion there's a great level of mathematics and analysis and all this thing about the, the degrees of arc of of vision of all, all these different things but what it fundamentally comes down to is that uh, you are a consumer in the home your tv is where it is because the size of the room the size of the television is because of the size of the room and your desires for what it should look like inside the room you're in. If you buy a TV today, it's 4K. But an interesting thing here is then, so do you get the benefit of 4K pixels or even 8K pixels when in a, in a, in, a, in your, your lounge area or TV viewing area? And reality-wise, with many people's eyesight as well, you don't necessarily always see the get the appreciation of the resolution particularly if you sit you know more than uh, six well basically more than six or seven or eight feet away you won't necessarily see the 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 improvement from having the higher pixel numbers but some people will some people won't it also depends if you sit closer but the in all these things of all these calculations the reality is we have 4k screens the reality is we have 4k content but we also have an awful lot of other hd content and a dirty little secret i need to share with everyone today is something which has been understood for many people in the industry is there are companies out there today putting out 1080p hdr and one of those companies is netflix they uh, pull out there a, a little program you may have heard of called star trek discovery it's only in hd but it's in full hdr and dolby vision as well for those people who have access to that and it's because at the end of the day, there are very many production reasons why they want to do that. But it's a great experience that people can actually have on their television set today. And you don't necessarily spot the fact that it's only in HD. And the second little bit of information to realize as well is that there are many mobile phones now which are HDR and they support YouTube in high dynamic range. But on every right. mobile phone today, that right now YouTube streams only in 1080p in HDR to those t those those mobile phone display devices pretty much 
I, I need to check yet the very latest ones are out this year. They may yeah. actually support higher resolutions. I think they may go up to 1440p, but they're still not fully 2160p. Because apart from anything else, they may be HDR, but none of those displays are actually 4K in resolution. So there's no point for a, for a company like YouTube to prepare and stream content to them in anything like that resolution. It's It's effectively wasted bits. So the reality is, Yes, some people can see the difference of 4K. Many cannot, but you do see the HDR. You do really feel the HDR. You feel the wide color gamut along with the HDR. And if you go and watch something on Netflix today, you will actually see some content only in HD, but HDR. And if they can do it, everyone can. Absolutely. Right. So it actually, uh, HD, HDR is, is happening uh, today. This is uh, the way HDR content is streamed to mobile devices. You, you mentioned a um, particular series that was shot in HD, HDR. But also, if you have a regular um, 4K HDR content, and then uh, you have uh, this, uh, you know, ABR, um, active bitrate streaming, and you're... Uh, bandwidth drops and you cannot get the 4k stream then probably the hd stream you get is still hdr right otherwise you will really notice the change in experience oh yes and during last summer i will i live in the uk and uh, i took a great advantage of the bbc's live or a live trial i think you probably want to call it or a live pilot so it was production level but you had to enable some things to see it but so it was generally available in the uk that you could have streamed to your home a 4k hdr a stream of the world cup matches and i saw that but the bbc did take a very conservative approach to it they wanted to make sure that regardless of anything else the consumers would always watch video without any disruption so they took a very conservative approach and a very managed approach to the way that they would stream. They actually very publicly said that they would limit people if it was ever going to go above the capabilities there, their live trial pilots. But also if you're in, if you look at the actual way that was delivered as well, we're talking here 36 megabits per second for the highest tier of, of 4K resolution video. And that can be a challenge even with the Wi-Fi in someone's home. And therefore, they took great care in making sure that that service would always deliver content. And I did a lot of analysis and a, several, a good several times during the entire run of some of those matches, I did drop down to lower resolutions. And I took a great deal of time looking at uh, reproduction they had and looking at whether I could really notice. And in actual fact, they had uh, so 2160p, they had 1440p, they had 1080p. They said they might have had 720p, but that was never seen, and I don't think it actually was used in the end. But certainly, they had those three levels of resolution, and uh, when certainly when the content dropped, con the rates in my terms of connectivity to my home from my ISP didn't allow it. They dropped down to 1440p. That was still a fantastic experience, and certainly barely noticeably different from the the 4K resolution version certainly for my eye set, and I was looking really, really, really closely at that TV screen at times. And certainly you can see 1080p as a, as a, you can see the difference there in terms of the resolution. But in terms of the overall experience, because you were sat back and you were looking at the whole experience of the whole movement of a lot of men running around a pitch, kicking a football, it was, uh, it was easily a great experience. And uh, it's only uh, less than 10 megabits rather than 36 megabits for 1080p. And they and and they maintained HLG, of course, a, across all three of those profiles. Correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And HLG and also also frame rate, or did the oh, frame yes. rate they change? Were, they had fifty FPS as we as we have in in, in absolutely. The UK. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it was, and if, the only distressing thing about the whole experience was that with the way that the matches won and lost, England, unfortunately, during the last few matches, we were only shown on ITV in the UK, which unfortunately weren't broadcasting it in uh, HDR. So those mm. last few matches we missed. <laughs> but I was Homer. able to see yeah. see them properly in HDR though, because uh, you know I was able to gain access to watch the content via one of our members who had access to those matches. So I was able to watch those in full, <laughs> even the losses. Nice, <laughs> <At> the <end laughs> nice, there. nice. 
Yeah. Well, I think there's a there, there's a very important message, you know, just to bring this whole discussion to a close. And, and that is, you know, what you just said is that at roughly 10 megabits, now 10 megabits per second was 1440p or was that 1080p? Oh, no, that, was, that was a 1080. It was 16 megabits. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And and, yeah. and these and, and and you know the BBC were you know obviously they're they're ex- not experimenting but they were working on and they, I think I believe they've done improvements since then to improve that. Sure, with, sure. Uh, with what they can deliver. That was so that was very much uh, almost their first go with yeah. this. But uh, but they're still okay bit rates. They're still equivalent or still yeah. comparable on streaming to satellite delivery, etc. Uh, and I'm sure they they will further improve those in the future as well. Sure, absolutely. But but the the takeaway for a listener is is that at the top profile, thirty six megabits. Of course, you know everybody will kind of say, okay, fine, you know. But my consumer, there's a very 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 small sliver of any video services consumers that can get that. But you go down to ten megabits, and now you're accessing, you know, especially in a developed area, pretty much, you know, very high percentage of consumers that can access that reliably that data rate. But what what I'm keying in on is what you said is that the quality still look fantastic, like the yes. to the consumer. And you know, you may, um, let's face it, you may not consider yourself a golden eye, but compared to the average consumer, you're absolutely a golden eye. And so if you're able to enjoy that, then how much more would a consumer? And uh, one of the things at Beamer that we're really evangelizing, we're working with our, our customers every day and talking about the need to extend HEVC and to extend HDR down into lower profiles and to break out of this mindset that there's sort of, it's almost the haves and the have-nots. You either get it all or you don't get any of it and that you can deliver a really demonstrably better experience to the consumer with just in some cases maybe even at the same bit rates you know or, or you know they have to increase a little bit for the hdr metadata and and it, you know certainly there is maybe higher frame rate i mean there's more bits required but i think that's really a, a very key takeaway and and i'd, I'd like to end on that note what yeah. do you say drawer yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I, I fully agree with you. You know, you, you, you increase your bit depth from 8-bit to 10-bit, and the overhead in bit rate is, is really minor, but you get a much better experience. And you can do that uh, today with your existing bandwidth, with your existing HD devices, mobile devices, tablets, um, etc. Even on TVs, when it's upscaled, it, it looks great. So that's really um, a working point that uh, the industry should uh, adopt to enable this enhanced experience without, you know, doubling, tripling the bitrate as, as required for 4K. So, uh, Ian, I really want to, to thank you for a very fascinating discussion. We learned a lot about uh, HDR, about uh, compatibility, interoperability, some dirty secrets uh, from, um, from the industry, and it's really been uh, fascinating. So thank you very much. For yes, joining thank us today. you. Thank you for joining us, Ian. That's, that's great. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you to you, the listener. Dror and I greatly appreciate the time that you spend with us listening to these episodes. We put a lot of care and thought into the guests we bring on and um, hopefully are able to bring some insights that are useful to you in your day-to-day life working in the industry, whether that's an encoding engineer or maybe you're on the business side, you're on the operations side. And once again, we'd love to invite you to come on the show. So just send us an email at thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's beamer, B-E-A-M-R.com. Send us an email. Tell us what you'd like to talk about. And uh, we would love to schedule you. And until next time, happy encoding, everybody. Happy encoding, everyone. Have an awesome day. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.